this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. If you're a reader, then you know the joy of discovering books. You also know that some of those discoveries stand out. Yes, there's the pleasure of finding a good book, and there's even those rare occasions where you find the right book, the right book at the right time in your life, the one that somehow shapes or bolsters who you are or will be. And then there are those other moments, where the book you find feels more like you've uncovered a hidden gem. Your Keats, on first looking into Chapman's Homer, feeling like stout Cortez, discovering a new world. In my case, the feeling resembles something less epic and more out of Indiana Jones, as though descending into the shelves of the Strand Bookstore in New York or Powell's Books in Portland, I emerge with a lost treasure, a forgotten totem or relic. It's a great feeling, one I love sharing with other readers. And that was very much my experience with Mark Ealing's new collection, River Dead of Minneapolis Scavenged by Teens. Finding it was a matter of luck. I'd come across one of his pieces online months ago, and I'd found it both strange and compelling. And then a writer who knows us both invited us to speak about an emerging genre that she calls the visual essay. And then, on the very weekend we spoke, after Ealing gave a performance of his work that was somehow hilarious and moving, I learned he was launching a new book. I immediately ordered a copy and I was not more than a few pages in before I heard that Indiana Jones theme resounding in my readerly brain. Ealing's work is weird and rich and intriguing and odd and wholly its own, and it's a joy to say to readers like you, you have to check this out. Mark Ealing, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me, Eric. Great to be here. It is fantastic to have you here, and I cannot wait to introduce listeners to your new book, River Dead of Minneapolis Scavenged by Teenagers. It's a fantastic title, and what's in the book is just fantastic as well. Uh, But before we get to that, we've got to just give listeners a a sense of of your background, because this is a book of nonfiction. It's a book of graphic art. It's a book of found objects. Um, There's an artistic... (laughs) Uh, vision in it that, that's not something that, that you encounter every day, and that's part of what makes it so wonderful. Where do you come from, Mark Ealing? That's a whole bunch of nice things that you said, and I'm just going to grab them in a net of thanks and say, first of all, thank you for those kind words. Um, yeah, the book uh, is a crazy hodgepodge, and as it relates to me is a uh, subject or an area of knowledge that I currently have almost no access to. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out on a daily basis what myself has to do uh, with the, the art. And maybe the easiest way to get into that is to talk about the art first instead of me. Um, I think all the things that you said were spot on. Um, the book is largely um, a, a, a collection of found things, uh, overheard comments from relatives, things I've heard on a bus, um, facts I've read, 
And the only way, uh, to my mind, that I was able to write that was not as a, a straight book of nonfiction, but as uh, a, a sort of a book of voices. So I would take those nonfiction uh, moments and and put them in the mouths of puppets, so to speak, and um, then have those puppets say things. And I guess now, now that I'm speaking about this a little bit, maybe I can more directly answer your self question and say that's uh, – if I think – to myself, uh, geez, what is it like to walk around and does one try to uh, take those things that you see in life and try to uh, somehow send them through the art pipeline and turn it into art? I think the, the book kind of replicates my experience of living. It's kind of random, seeing little snatches of things here and there and then coming home at the end of the day and saying, well, that was strange. <laughs> so, so yeah, um, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's somewhat of the, the, uh, the self-book link. Well, you've written elsewhere that, that you're an avid journaler. Um, yeah. And I want to make sure that the readers or listeners understand that this, this isn't journaling, right? This isn't a, <laughs> a, somebody's found journal that we've got here. There's a, there's a compression at work. There's a kind right. of this thematic theme that comes back. So I'm wondering about that, that process of, you know, here, here are my scraps of the day that I'm kind of jotting into a journal, which I think a lot right. of us do. And and what sort of somehow makes it through that sieve and gets the, the compression and transformation that's going on in this book? That's a great question. And, and you talk about the journal and um, uh, from that um, habit, keeping a notebook, I truly have to thank uh, my uh, first uh, mentor and writing teacher. His name is Lon Otto. Uh, he taught at the University of St. Thomas. And he had us, um, by the way, he's an amazing writer, um, taught me a ton. But the most valuable thing I took from his class uh, had to do with uh, a writerly practice um, where he just called it the Journal of Concrete Observations. And he was very uh, careful to uh, tell us and uh, make the distinction aware in us, this isn't a journal where you write down your thoughts and feelings. You know, Dear Diary, uh, X came over, afterward I wept. It's not that type of thing. Um, it's not a record of your sort of inner turmoil or your thoughts even. What it is is the place where you use your sort of ears and eyes and sense organs like a kind of body camera and record all the things that are captivating. And it's amazing how much the self, um, the person gets stripped out of it. I mean, I think there's an interesting discussion to be had about what kind of self emerges when you look at the entirety of what a single person chooses to observe. That's certainly interesting and, and may shed light on on a person or selfhood or, or you know what a looker or observer is when they're doing that stuff. Um, but I found it liberating. Um, I didn't have to uh, weep tear hair, <laughs> uh, get involved in my own messy uh, inner junk. Um, there's a calmness in being a camera and in just paying attention to the world. And as I gathered those things, I mean, all the way back in, you know, what would that have been, 94, 95 or something like that, starting that practice, um, you just look back on it and they the moments are so specific, uh, they take you back to that place, that time, and they're charged with energy. And I think more um, straight ahead or maybe technically better writers <laughs> would be able to take those moments and like sprinkle them into a classically plotted narrative. And I couldn't do that. All I could do was just sort of serve those little moments up on platters, sort of moment to moment saying, here's this thing. How about this oddity? Oh, look again over here. And that's the way I've written ever since. 
So one way I, I, I'm, I'm hearing you describe this, and I think it, it makes sense, is that it's this kind of curio cabinet that has been exactly. assembled. Um, exactly. And you can tell a lot about the, the curator of a curio cabinet from what's inside it. Um, a self emerges, like you were saying, and also yes. each individual facet has its, its own kind of gravity and attraction, and the collection as a whole starts to do so. Um, right. Thank you. What I don't don't want to come across though is is this is not a book that reads like somebody's scrapbook or a junk heap. I mean, th- <laughs> there's a real sort of integral vision, and so I'm wondering if if there's a way you can describe to readers <laughs> the experience of the book. Um, you know, one of the challenges I think that that we're going to face is that so much of the power of these pieces is visual. There's a wonderful oh, textual sensibility, but the visual impact of it um, is very unusual. Um, have you you know have you ever been asked to describe your own kind of aesthetic in a positive way not the i couldn't do the classic <laughs> essay so i did this thing that you know less talented writers do i think that there's a tremendous amount uh, of a talent and aesthetic integrity in here well that is that is super kind there's three comments that came out uh the first one is how, how do you say what you're all about with not with with not slagging on yourself and uh, that may be impossible i was raised catholic and so <laughs> a, a high degree of shame and guilt and uh uh self laceration usually goes along with all things just kidding of course um but uh yeah so that's sort of hardwired i tend to tend to uh not try to gaze gaze upon my own uh, you know uh, motives too much um, but uh, you had two other comments that were um, that were interesting one was about um, visuals how do visuals play into the book and the second one was about um, how does this book not seem random uh, if, if one works out a collage collecting fragments um, is there a way to present those fragments that isn't just uh, pure chaos? And there is. So, you know, I'm glad that you kept me honest to that. So I'll address that point first. Um, so, yeah, a lot of these found bits um, uh, appear all over the book. And only one piece in particular serves them up as discrete um, collaged fragments surrounded by empty space. That's truly the only piece in the book, and it's called Notes uh, Notes Toward an Essay on the Meaning of Art. Um, but the other ones, uh, they tend to come to life, and I think this only happens in the process when I'm arranging these things. Sometimes uh, the sequence of fragments, you'll say, well, uh, you know, there's just no way uh, to go ahead other than present them. And so you chop them up, you surround them by space, and uh, it's almost like touring some sort of curio cabinet, like you mentioned. Uh, the others, I found that there's a, a great deal of, of energy and interest from a continuous voice. Um, now, I'm not a writer that uh, gets into characters much or like believes in characters, as someone would say, oh, you know, I've created this person and he's a, you know, middle aged man with a dark past, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what I do like is the voice. A, a voice that has a purpose for speaking. And maybe the voice is confusion, maybe it's um, anger, maybe it's uh, some sort of uh, inchoate mixture of emotions, but that voice needs to talk. And it's usually um, a question of marrying uh, the right kind of voice uh, to those collage uh, fragmentary details that we were talking about. So that's how a lot of those uh, pieces got written from the text component. Um, we can talk more about that later if you like. Um, for the visuals, uh, it was the same kind of um, 
collage process, but um, I was really drawn to um, these high contrast black and white images that felt like theater. Um, I've worked in theater. I've loved the experience of going into a darkened room and having a sort of magic sensation of, wow, something is about to happen. There's going to be an experience. There's going to be a special moment. And uh, in a way, these little comics panels felt to me like little theaters. And precisely because so much of the book contains real stories, except spoken through the mouth of these you know, so-called puppets. Um, I wanted the pictures to have that same sense of realism. And so almost every single image in the book is a found image from uh, archives, mid-century trade magazines, um, uh, things of that nature. Uh, so I looked in books like American Metallurgy and Chemical Week from the 60s and Hotel Motel Monthly and found a whole bunch of strange uh, seeming innocuous photos of people standing around, but that felt like they could be um, sort of shadowy analogs uh, to the voices that were speaking in the book. So that's a, that's a very vague way, I think, of describing the relationship between word and image, but that's that's some of what's happening there. It gives us a very nice sense of, of the process that you're using, and and just to give listeners a sense, you know, none of the the characters, except on rare occasions, have faces. Um, <laughs> their faces are stripped, right? So they're kind of yes. masked, um, and which is lending a a very forceful gravity to the voice and what they say. There's yeah. this opportunity to to kind of project in. Um, it seems <laughs> like the the book invites the narrative impulse, but resists it at the same time. Right. That's that's all more well said than I would ever say myself and really on point. Um, I, I'm glad you talked about the faces. Uh, you know, these images of people from the 50s, you know, 40s, 60s, standing around in various poses, juxtaposed against these words. Um, I ran into that problem that you hinted uh, that sort of lies in wait if you have faces, um, number one is my artistic talents are limited. And once I get up in a human face <laughs> as a person holding a pencil, uh, unless I own up to my badness, the drawings get really weird. It's that um, – have you heard of that thing called the uncanny valley ever? Is that phrase familiar? Sure, sure, right. yes. Yes, it's um, you know I think people use it with like um, realistic uh, 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 human likeness robots where they say, well, you know, if you're looking at um, you know there's a spectrum of robots that look like people. You know, if you have like R two D two who's ostensibly got like a cyclops eye but largely doesn't look like a person, he's somehow cute and lovable because he's not trying to be human. But if you see a very realistic uh, a uh, robot face that something is slightly off. It just looks horrifying. <laughs> they, that's what people say is a, a thing that falls into that uncanny valley where there is it, it's it's so close, but just a hair shy of total one hundred percent likeness that we recoil. That there's something about our knowledge of how how things should look, how faces should look, that you just sort of you you are re- repulsed by it. And I don't have um, great skill. I don't, I'm not a good uh, draftsman. And so it was both like a practical issue. I, I, I said, okay, I don't need to do faces, number one, because I'm not that good at it. 
But secondly, it also really served the, the exact purpose that you talked about, which is that um, with the blankness of faces, like in oh, – I used to see these George Siegel sculptures. I don't know if you know who that is, but he paper uh, – uh, sort of does plaster casts of, of people and arranges them in situations, and he paints them all matte colors, usually white, so that details are very hard to see. Um, it's sort of like a person can then, watching that featureless face, kind of – get into the inhabit the character or inhabit the world without feeling like they have to read what's going on in that world. Um, and I think that that allowed for space for the reader to come in with these featureless faces that readers could feel free to imagine what's going on a little bit more instead of uh, a really specific face telegraphing uh, what's happening. And finally, it left room for the words. Um, I'm a, I'm a writer probably first and, um, illustrator second. And I think, uh, having space for the text to feel like it was playing a large role, um, uh, was necessary. And, and I think if I had that, the heavy, you know, heavy data of a face on a page, it would crowd out the words, I think. So yeah, it's both a, both a practical, uh, issue and a theoretical issue, <laughs> I guess. It, 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 yeah, I, you can imagine that, right? Here's the way I solve the problem as an artist, and it ends up having this aesthetic effect. Um, right. But I, I do want to circle back to this issue of, of realism, because in a couple of the discussions that have been out there about the book, people describe yeah. it as like a surreal collection or something like that. Right, um, right. And this is going to be a... It's going to be a kind of unfair question because in that essay that you mentioned, Notes Towards an Essay on the Meaning of Art, yes. there are these series of, of vignettes that could be aesthetic, that could be like little scenes or things. Um, right. And because of the way the piece is laid out, it yeah. feels like they're a little bit meta, a little bit descriptive of <laughs> the kind of art that's going on. And, right. You know, so, so to give listeners... Fair warning. Like one of them is about the description of creating a breakfast tornado, which is the <laughs> almost breakfast sandwich. Um, right. So, so that's kind of one metaphor for art and perhaps the art making that you're experiencing in the book. But you do right. kind of go, you know, high art at one moment and you quote Brock, you know, the co-founder of Cubism. And right. you, you quote his line, I'm aiming for realism. Right. And that kind of haunted me at that that moment. I thought, is, is this some alternative way of, of, of achieving realism? <laughs> I, I sure hope so. It, it, this really cycles back um, to, uh, you know, what you and I were talking about self and, uh, you know, not just me, but anyone – Anyone who who makes things, you know, uh, any any art maker and heck other disciplines as well, you know, you're this person that you are with your family and friends, and and then you're alone in times, and you're just seeing and experiencing or projecting things, and you're always trying to square that up with um, what you make. Um, and uh, to me, you know, the the gap is always large because you know, as you know, you know, making things, it's uh, it's hard. It's 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 uh, a lot of reaching toward an ideal that that we all uh, fall fall short of. And um, I think you know, in that mix, with this, especially with uh, comics or alt comics or literature, you know, avant garde literature, man, if you can't get any money for anything, if you can't. <laughs> If you're not doing it for commerce, you should at least try to do it out of a sense of truth of what it's like to to experience things in the world, and um, and to be honest, that's you know a mixture of strangeness in dreams, in half lies and half facts. Um, it's always always felt to me in, in more in, uh, uh, in 
sort of for for me personally a better way to capture experience um, than to you know straight up tell a very factual or completely fabricated story um, and and probably that's owing to just uh, you know the experience of of uh, walking around you know you hear things out of people's mouths and and they're pure um you know you could later come to learn they're they're pure lies but they were told in an interesting way um in a in a certain mood that stuck with you and so even if if the truth of what that person said disappears the emotional truth remains so so I sure hope so yeah it'd be it'd be um it'd be fun to create a new genre of nonfiction made exclusively out of dreams <laughs> that'd be that'd be very fun I think it, well the way you describe it it makes me think not so much of you know naive real where we think of like the the typical novel that tells a story where you pretend you're behind the fourth wall as the characters right. unfold, but something like uh, unnaive realism. Like, <laughs> this is the way that minds work, and reality is perceived in a very fuzzy and multi-veiled way. And if you can somehow capture right. that, you're getting better uh, oh. a, a better representation of it than if you just pretend that it's all straightforward and projected on a screen. Well, absolutely, and and gosh darn it, if there aren't some great works that do that straightforward presentation that still transports you. I mean, I, I can't possibly slag a style because, you know, anyone who does it well gets you to that magic place. Um, but, uh, but I've, you know, I've, you know, more often than not, I, I really feel exactly what you're saying that you, I think you mentioned, and forgive me if I'm uh, misremembering the way you phrased it, but kind of you're talking about like a- accessing a mind or accessing a consciousness. And to me, picking up a book, that's that's really always been one of the most exciting things. It's not that someone's putting on a grand story for you that, to get lost in, but that you're encountering like a real and odd human brain or a human soul for lack of a better word and you're like feeling in in like like you just get plugged into a brain and this book is a medium for that and anything that delivers that 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 you know connectivity really quick and and in the strangest you know possible way that's that's always seemed exciting so that's that's a great phrasing i'm i'm glad you mentioned that well I would love it if, if this point I know I know the book works on a visual level very well, but uh, if you'd be willing to read a piece, I would imagine people are curious by now. Sure, what, what we're actually talking about, and if there's a way at least to give some taste of that. Sure, absolutely, there is. Um, I could do a few things, and I guess one is um, I'll read. Well, it's one of the one of the shorter pieces in the book. Um, it's called the sound. And it's it's probably a good example of um, a voice that is coherent uh, on the page, but it's actually, um, you know, from my perspective, just collaging a series of of disparate um, things that that um, that I'd heard and, and seen, and uh, so maybe it reads uh, more straight ahead than all the stuff that we're talking about, and, and without the images. Um, uh, it certainly will be a different experience, um, than, than reading in the book, but, but, uh, I'd love to start with that one. Um, should I just uh, fire into it? Fantastic. That would be great. Okay. This is called the sound. I was drinking with friends at the nightcap in 1998 when one of them, his name is Daniel Tripps, began to make a lowing sound or a sound that could be characterized as bovine or having the quality of animals or livestock. Prior to this moment, the moment when I first heard the sound, I sensed that the evening's conversation had already left him behind. 
He slouched. He stared out the window. He did not speak or look at the group, and as a consequence, he seemed to become invisible. I almost didn't hear the sound. It was faint. The bar was loud, and he seemed to expel the sound largely into the palm of his hand that was supporting his chin. But I did hear it. The effect was alarming. I have earlier described the sound as bovine or cow-like, but as I listened, I discovered the sound itself was comprised of three distinct and recombinant vowel sounds, moo, ma, me, each one varying slightly in duration and frequency, almost as if the sound was an emergent proto-word or a test pattern for speaking. At some point, conversation pulled me in. I disengaged from trips, and when I next glanced over, he was gone. My father fell down and broke his hip. This was unrelated and happened weeks ago. While hospitalized, my father began temporarily to see people who did not exist. He mentioned their names, Donna Pram, Liz Farmington, Squeaky Jill Messerschmidt, and I recognized the names from memory. At one point, they had all lived in Mason City, Iowa. They were also dead. While talking, my father's pupils were dilated. His eyelids were pulled open, and the eyes themselves were glassy and seemingly focused on some indeterminate point in space. I thought to myself, I'm looking into the heart of those fish eyes. For two whole days, he explained to me he was speaking with dead girlfriends. He said, they want to make sex with me. He also said, they're in the room. Several days later, he lost the fish eyes, and he was well again. Doctors informed me this is merely called sundown syndrome, momentary hallucinations caused in the elderly by nothing more than a change of scenery, like a sudden trip to the hospital or day turning into night. But I wanted to tell you about Daniel Tripps. We found him next door. He had wandered into a bar called Mayslax. Mayslax is regionally famous for promoting and serving a certain type of garlic-dipped roast beef sandwich. Daniel Tripps was eating, and eating with visible pleasure, one of these sandwiches. I witnessed him licking fingers, closing eyes in ecstasy, masticating. At this moment, he began to repeat the sound. We listened. The sound formed a word. The word was now clear. It was easily understandable. His speaking of the word did not seem symptomatic of an illness I could recognize. The word was very simple. The word was meat. And I should say for listeners that you've got three panels after that of a guy holding a hamburger, what looks like a cow made of boxes, and then just a blank black panel, right? It just trails off. Right. And so many of the stories, I mean, they, they do end in these moments of silence with no resolution, Right. How can you leave us with no resolution? <laughs> I, no closure, I, no <laughs> click on the box that tells us what this means or why these two stories were put together. I, at this point, as a response, I either boldly assert or cowardly uh, retreat to the, my earlier assertion about the, uh, the ways that, uh, that I experience stories. Um, in you know, along with the Journal of Concrete Observations, along with gathering fragments, and um, along with just walking around, 
Um, that's the predominant um, feeling to me of so many stories I've heard. Um, and I, I, I hesitate to even articulate that because it seems uh, almost kind of pat to say, you know, stories I hear don't have conclusions. Uh, and of course, you know, that's, that's not true for everything, but certainly for my, my observational life. Um, you, you know, uh, uh, what would be a good example of this? I suppose, um, yeah, I, while I was researching stories in the book, I'm in the library, and two things happened while I'm in the library. Uh, one is, a, uh, if I take him at his word, a recently um, discharged Afghanistan parachutist uh, finds me and monologues about his troubles. I notice that he's got a uh, hospital uh, plastic wristband with his name and a barcode on it. Um, and he tells me that he's just got out of detox and had some prison trouble. And uh, he sort of mentions his tale and wanders off um, without much conclusion. He sort of needed to say things to a person. <laughs> and for a couple of minutes, I was that person. And then he's gone. Um, then I go down to another part of the stacks. And there's an old man uh, arguing, uh, groaning about the fact that he can't get his copies uh, to come out on the copier. And he's hassling the librarian, getting more uh, volatile. Um, but at that moment, I move away down the stacks. My research draws me elsewhere, and their conversation recedes. And those moments are really – I still think about them weirdly a lot. Um, but they're just stuck there. They're just stuck like so much of all the crap <laughs> – <laughs> that, that we uh, take in in the course of a day. And for me, I can't get rid of those things. Uh, they stick with me, uh, strange moments, and, and sometimes it feels like they, they are surrounded by and end and, and in kind of silence. Um, I, I, I hope that's, that doesn't get to be a trope or, <laughs> or, 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 or I lean on that too much because I think the stories sometimes demand conclusions. But that's probably the best way I can get for you, Eric. <laughs> I sure wish I had a more satisfying answer. I think I think that's a, a nice, you know, defense in the classic sense of of, of what's going on. I, you know, the the pieces on the page they feel very compressed and overdetermined, like a dream, and and weighted, and it's not a lyric compression. You know, they're, right? They're not things that sing. Um, but I, I think <laughs> no. it's something about the way the the space that you give them. They take on a certain kind of weight and gravity. Um, yeah, that gives them a density. Some of these, you know, go on for a dozen pages, but some of them are are two, three pages in a book that you know can fit in your pocket. Yes. Well, this is you know, it's a, it's I, uh, again, you're saying so many um, uh, to me fascinating things that are true about the book about uh, non lyric compression um, uh, and in uh, things of that nature, and I'm reminded of perhaps another little footnote to tack on to you know your your question about um, you know why tell these things in this way. I mean, sometimes you know you find a narrator. Um, in life, I mean, a person on earth who is narrating, not in the story, but as you meet them in the world, and they have a kind of weird sense of storytelling. And um, I'm thinking right now, my grandpa Bill, he was uh, just, you know, just a great guy and um, had such an odd uh, way of telling stories. He was not a what anyone would call a, like a raconteur or, or, a, or a narrator, but he had these terse little odd prose poem stories 
and he told it all. Uh, you know, he's from Iowa, and he told it all in this 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 voice that he had from the prairie. And one of those stories that that he told is in the book it's in its entirety and um that's exactly the way he he told it um uh which is once he described uh some people that came up to fight him and uh, both the assailants and my grandfather had their dogs and the fight happened and the fight between the dogs happened and then there was an outcome and he just ended it and it wasn't <laughs> didn't have any context it was just a a little nugget of weird terseness that he would deliver like so many other things that were like less like stories and more like strange little facts and um and maybe that style of storytelling is is really stuck with me i i I always wonder if that's uh, some some kind of unconscious uh seepage uh listening to our you know whatever style we inherit from our uh, our uh, fathers and and grandparents that, that makes perfect sense. And I want to come back to that. Um, I just want to follow up on the observation that you made. I think a commonplace understanding of the link between sort of stories and self is, is anecdotal, right? Like dad tells the one at Thanksgiving about the time he made this. And right. oh, that's old grandmother's story about when she lived on the farm, right? And, and like we right. link them up with the personality. Um, right. But it's interesting to think about stories that aren't somehow indicative or metonymic of the self, but they're, they're just these right. stories that happen and have an aura to them that, that is storytelling rather than, you know, pointing towards the person who's telling them. Right. Yes. I mean, wow. Yeah. There's, <laughs> I go, go, you know, go back and forth on that all the time, thinking about, thinking about self in one hand and, and the facts of the story um, on the other. I think, I think, because that's in some ways that's always the problem, is uh, and and again getting back to your question of how does one take fragmentary things? Sure, you can just deliver up the fragments, but also there's an impulse uh, to t- to have some coherence. I think you know the piece that I read, the sound that's coming from the mouth of a single speaker doesn't on its face I don't think sound all that weird. It's it does, it's certainly not a surreal or dream piece. Um, but uh, but that's the thingy way, isn't it? Um, you know, you have you have this material that's almost like a platonic material. <laughs> the facts exist in space. Then you think, well, it has to come out of the mouth of a person. Somebody has to say the the darn stuff. So who is that going to person? Who's that person going to be? And what are they going to sound like? It's so- a so tell us why they sometimes look like clowns whose facial expressions <laughs> never change, right. which is a, a, a kind of visual that returns throughout the book in several essays. There are these clowns. Sometimes there's one. Sometimes there's two that are in dialogue. Their <laughs> right. facial expressions never change. That's that's great. For for those people who are listening, Eric stepped on the other huge thing about the book is that half of it, the visuals look in some ways classically like comics. They have characters in somewhat dynamic poses doing things on a page and there's visual dynamism. There's uh, angles and, and objects and uh, scenes that are changing. Um, and those are always uh, placed smack dab behind the monologue of a single speaker, almost as though you're seeing pictures of a scene that person is describing or you're seeing pictures of their mind or you're seeing metaphorical images that correspond to the story. The other half of the book are dialogues, um, and that was uh, a challenge to me. Um, so again, I'll give you the practical answer and the, the sort of aesthetic answer. Um, 
is that when I had these dialogues, suddenly you got two characters. And I couldn't, in the way that I could with the single speaker, throw up onto the page somewhat metaphorical or random images. Because I think then that starts, you get two voices and an image of randomness. And there's almost too many competing elements. I tried a few of those and it it's always seemed like there was too much stuff going on. And uh, then um, the other option that occurred to me is, well, I'll, I'll draw a, a sequence of, of two guys and there'll be these two guys that are having a conversation um, throughout the uh, entire book. Um, but I ran up against a little problem, like I told you. I was heavily using source photos and to find uh, source images of two people having a conversation uh, that lasts over a very long time with multiple body postures and angles was beyond my ability to reference. And when I tried using myself as a photo reference, I literally sat down and played the part of two guys changing positions on a chair, leaning in, gesticulating, had all this footage of my dumb mug on my computer as I did all these contortions. And it was too labor intensive. It was just too much. So the practical answer is uh, is I I couldn't uh, somehow with these two characters, uh, draw them having this book-length conversation. Um, And so I I went back to something I'd done earlier. I did an essay um, for uh, a website called Essay Daily, um, which was essentially kind of a book report about this great um, uh, Tarkovsky book, Andrei Tarkovsky, uh, Russian filmmaker. And I just had these, I was fascinated by these clown head images. There was a couple uh, um, old uh, coin-operated banks, these movable, almost, uh, you know, uh, what would you call them? Movable banks. Uh, people made these things back at the turn of the century where you'd put a coin in and, you know, say it was a circus scene and uh, you'd put a coin in and you know, turn the monkey's tail and the coin would flip up and go into the bank reservoir and stuff like that. And there were these two clowns that were banks. And I took a couple pictures of them, um, found them in the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and uh, then just uh, sat with the images and would (laughs) every once in a while look at them. And uh, they came in my mind. This answer is getting way too long. I'm going to cut to the quick really, really soon. But these guys came in my mind to uh, sort of represent kind of a – I don't know, Tweedledee and Tweedledum of academic discussion. Um, (laughs) The essay that I wrote, I needed to be characters speaking because I couldn't with any authority say a thing and make points as like one person. I needed to sort of puncture and prod myself and either support myself or cut myself out when I was saying things. Um, And and these little, you know, um, uh, sort of static, puppet heads seemed like great stand-ins. <laughs> they, they were mildly amusing to me. And I liked the effect. They, they had a, a wonderful, hilarious blankness, um, almost like they were you know actors in some sort of Beckett play. <laughs> it, Beckett loved uh, static heads coming out of jars and saying things. Uh, and so, yeah, I just repurposed them for the book because I thought, well, when they're, when they're speaking, you can be darn sure that you know which guy is speaking. So it takes care of that problem. And, um, and uh, yeah, they, they discuss philosophy and life and, and do so in either dumb or illuminating ways. And they seem like great, uh, great stand-ins. 
Yeah, I, I think they definitely have this this kind of uh, you know Laurel and Hardy relationship on the one hand. Then they have eerie clown relationship on the other hand. It, it, <laughs> right. It's multi dimensional. I, I think one of the things the book has achieved so nicely, and the clowns do this as well because again their, their facial expressions don't change. Um, right, is how much you can achieve uh, through a minimalist gesture. So as right. the dialogue unfolds. I can't help but sort of imagine and ascribe things to the faces. The faces change despite the fact that the graphic on the page does not. Right. And you're, you somehow managed to get, to get my eye to focus in other essays on blank sections. Yes. As long as I do on the, the sections that have what other people <laughs> might describe as content. And that, right. that was one of the reasons I was so excited. Like, how can he make nothing do so much? <laughs> That was a happy accident, and and really it was, uh, you know, once you say to yourself, all you have for an image reservoir or image palette are either three things, clown A, clown B, or blackness, <laughs> um, you, you say to yourself, well, I guess I'll play with blackness, and this goes back to the comics as theater. It's not a great analogy, but I sure love that comics shape time or, or you know, writers do this. Text writers do this with white space on the page. I mean, it's not exclusively a domain of comics, but silence is great. Um, you know, silence when you know someone's speaking, like I am. I'm just a, a, a you know a, a, a floatsome um, log jam of words right now with no ceasing. God, would it be nice to have some silence in there to reflect? And when that happens, it just, it just, it's like a, a, a holy moment. It just takes whatever is around it and, and, um, and makes it interesting. You know, pauses in, in theater, uh, where there's just the actors on the stage lit in a certain way. That's beautiful. And, um, yeah, a happy accident. As I was mucking around with these clown heads, it seemed like there were times of rest that m were necessary. And maybe you, it'd be nice for like, two or three panels for a clown head to simply stare into stare into the void. <laughs> and once I saw that, I, I it felt right. And um and and it, it it gives almost a performative quality to I think to some of their um uh inane dialogues that they could they could do that, that sort of uh, moment of, of gaping uh reflection. <laughs> So, so yeah, I'm glad you dug that. And not entirely innate. Not entirely innate. In <laughs> fact, what I want to do is, 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 um, I, I don't know if this, you, you, you might just say, LeMay, you've already answered this question, but I want to describe <laughs> the book entirely differently from how we've been doing so far. Yeah. Because yeah. I think if somebody came up to me and described the book in this way, I would say, yes. well, yes, that's accurate. <laughs> um, and the reason I want to do that is because I, I think the book is incredibly rich and, and we're getting kind of Thank one avant-garde perspective on how the content works and, and what it might be. But I, right. can, I can imagine a reader coming up and saying something like, like, this is a book with a heavy sense of place, right? Sometimes it's <laughs> Iowa. Sometimes it's a river district. Yes. It's a book that's grounded in a certain kind of community, right? Yes. It's an immigrant yes. community, a Slovakian community. It yes. also has a really tight sense of time. It's got a unity of, of kind of, it's, it's old timers or the olden days. It's yes. men wore fedoras. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so, so there's, you know, now we've got a book that has those classic unities of, of time yes. and place and character. And it, 
Yeah. To me, it does have all of that richness. Um, That's so kind of you. It's it's funny. Yeah, we t- we talk about avant garde, but you come back to the same stuff. <laughs> you come back to places on Earth and people on Earth, and uh, and all that. It's that's uh, very well said. I mean, uh, it's certainly. I'm glad that those things emerge. You know, very happy that you were able to to latch on to that um because uh again it's this this all circles back to that nonfiction idea and uh you know uh the pleasure of of stories geez it, it must begin for so many people in um in hearing about their own families and and certainly that was just a giant reservoir of stuff for me in this book was thinking about uh the the old tales and uh people that are gone and uh, the kinds of worlds they talked about, and and it's weird. It's two generations, and uh, already those things seem like phantasms or or Im- impossibilities almost. The the things people did and the way they lived. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad that that you felt that because certainly the, all all those things place older people, older communities. That was that was high in my mind as I was making this book. Mm-hmm. The um, the title essay, River Dead of Minneapolis Scavenged by Teens, I mean, you do, I think you could describe it fairly enough. Maybe you'll disagree. As, yes. Here's this, here's this portrait of this small boy and a portrait of a river and a town. And it's, right. it's kind of this devastating character portrait, which is, you know, what we started off saying, well, this book isn't really interested in character in the same way, that, <laughs> but it does. It feels like you've got, you know, boy on the river swimming in the river right. with the, the kind of all the complexity of coming of age. And suddenly I felt right. like I was in a different genre. Well, that's cool. I'm, I, I equally glad that that's, you know, all accessible. I think, I think that the fact that, um, those moments come through, you say like, you know, the idea of a, a coherent person, um, you know, maybe that's, uh, you know, instill in some ways, despite, um, collage or fragmentary things that, you know, the best sort of the best, um, way or, or, or a great way to deliver fragmentary, uh, narrative is, is by having it in a person that, or, or a voice, if, if one doesn't believe in, in the construct or the person, a voice that feels like it's speaking out of some, some real need. And, um, yeah, I think that was the case, uh, for that piece. I'd read this great man um old libraries they're your friend um i go to them all the time um used to go to the minnesota history center library filled with just great bizarre tomes and um registries of patients who had lived in psychiatric hospitals and then you find these little um home published memoirs and there was one of them um by this guy who was like some northeast minneapolis alderman and uh he just described life on the river in the in the 30s and he said that uh you know his family was poor so he did a lot of scavenging um, he talked about taverns in that time would have their own currency, like tavern tokens, and these would get occasionally dumped in the river, and then he would dredge those out and sell them, or he would, you know, grab pigeon, uh, pigeons from uh, uh, rafters and things like that. But he also talked at a, a lot of length and with great love, almost kind of a creepy love about about finding dead guys in the river. And uh, what he would take from them, and you know, they had you know jewelry or or things scavenging the dead bodies, and um, yeah, and I guess as the story came to be written, it felt it felt uh, maybe right to have someone speaking about 
the the day when the pleasure of scavenging dead people would come to an end and when a person had to find a job and and become part of society <laughs> so i certainly didn't think that maybe explicitly writing it but it on on the outer on the outside end of it it feels like that's exactly what happened well, Edgar Allan Poe alerted us a long time ago with his little essay on the rave and the philosophy of composition that what artists are doing behind the scenes and what emerges <laughs> are two different things. And, you know, yes. don't think that the artist had that all in mind as it was taking place. Right. Um, oh, gosh. But yes. the beauty is what what ends up coming out of the process and, and uh, the encounter with it, which I couldn't say enough for about this book. I want to make sure oh, that you. readers search it out. Um, you're not going to find it next to the Marvel comics. <laughs> um, but it is it's worth true. finding out and we'll put some, some information on our website for readers to do that. Uh, but, but I would be curious to hear before we finish talking where you're going now. I mean, the new book is out. Yes, the new book is out. Um, you know, I'm uh, making some small local appearances here in Minneapolis to uh, support it. Probably the biggest thing I did, uh, I self-published the book, you know, and so that that is both uh, liberating and, and gives you a ton of controls over things that I love about book arts, you know, the feel of the, the paper, the cover stock, and um, the sort of the uh, the hue of the interior paid, uh, paper, um, all those sort of uh, a book arts control freak things um, you can have. But of course, you know, the headaches of self-publishing as well, you know, just simply uh, getting the Mark, I think we've lost you. I'm going to try to call you back. Thank you. Are we live, Eric? We are live. <laughs> it's, I just wanted to say it's so awesome that I was cut off because the very comment that I was talking about was how uh, it feels like an extreme act of narcissism to self-promote and self-publish. So I think it was so beautiful that that's the moment that I just disappeared off the face of the planet uh, uh, from an audio perspective. <laughs> that was awesome. Well, that's the worry. And, and, and I, um, you know, <laughs> one of the reasons I was excited about doing this was to, to alert potential readers to the book because it, it's hard to find. But I did not know that in the world of, of kind of graphic literary art there is this small community of people that are publishing and supporting one another and yes. it's so artistically rich yes. um, and it gives you access to this body of work um, that's you know has I think kind of the the particularities but also the richness of say America's poetry scene or something like that um, but it's right. hard to find it, it is it is hard to find I think a person needs to well there's a couple things to say about that one is you know god i love text literature that stuff is great um it's so awesome um i also have to say and a complaint with it is that world and maybe it's the medium i've never decided this but that world seems a little just a hair less inclusive um and i wonder if that isn't because the very nature of text is forcing us because all the visually a good book and a bad book look exactly the same. I'm talking about the guts of a book, not the the cover or the book design. You know, they're they're words on a page, printed words, um, give or take a few design elements that we're we aren't automatically forced to a sort of higher, deeper, critical level with text. You know, they they're the same thing, words on a page, but then we have to probe them and say, is did I get a feeling out of this? Did I, um, you know, or is it saying something interesting? Um, this could be a total bullshit theory too, but you know, I feel that with comics, there's sort of a, it is what it is kind of quality in that community, 
And of course, yes, there's worlds of criticism to talk about this drawing style or that drawing style as being bad or this artist is not being elevated uh, and and being, you know, this artist is a lesser artist, all that stuff. But, um, you know, I guess it just comes out of that culture. You have these things like zine fests, you know, people that staple stuff at a FedEx office um, in, you know, with little hand-drawn comics. And those are a, a big part of that culture, little obscure creators making these sometimes crudely drawn things. And, and they're sort of cherished in a way, I think, that crudely written texts aren't cherished <laughs> in the culture. Um and so, yeah, yeah, that's there. You know, you'll find these places on Tumblr. There's communities that support comics there, and these little conferences and zine fests and and all that stuff. So, so yeah, maybe there's, you know, I, I don't know. Again, I, I'm wading into super, uh, um, you know, uh, tenuous territory here, um, trying to trying to uh, bolster my arguments about text versus comics. But, but that may be something. Well, you don't have to put yourself in a position to kind of, uh, you know, discredit literary America for not further um, embracing it. We can just say that there there is some amazing work out there, and some of the the comics that uh, you talk about in your writing are ones that readers can hunt down through just a, a quick Google. But um, this is true. The upshot is that there there's tremendously rich aesthetic work that we need to find a way to get to. Oh, agreed. Agreed. And uh, yeah, I mean, um, I think the best thing to do is to, and P.S., before I advance to the next comment, I, I need you as a, a PR consultant to follow me whenever I'm about to slag a swath of millions of people. <laughs> um, that's That would be very helpful to have you at my back to redirect in a very helpful way my sentiments. Um, but uh, yeah, the best way to do this, man, you know, pop online, go into a comic store, whatever. And as soon as you find artists you like, isn't it the truth? I mean, you just sort of find places where they've been, magazines they've appeared, and you just start, the world start opening up. You know, one one uh, person who's curating a blog has a, an artist that you like on it, and then you find that person's curatorial tastes are totally awesome. And there's a whole host of other, um, you know, great uh, artists. And God, they just keep coming. I mean, one can't one can't keep up with with how many cool, interesting um, uh, writers and, and illustrators and artists there are out there. So that, the internet is a blessing in that way. That sounds like a, a wonderful note on which to close. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mark, for your time with us and for sharing your work. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Mark Ealing, the author of River Dead of Minneapolis, Scavenged by Teens on the New Books Network.